All right, today we're going to begin a, uh, a new series together through the book of First John. So you have, if you have your copy of God's Word, would you find your place there in First John? And uh, I don't know if you're old enough to remember a movie from 20 years ago. Um, there was a movie, Russell Crowe and um, Meg Ryan in an action suspense movie called Proof of Life. Anybody remember this movie? Proof of Life. This is not a recommendation, okay? So, um, but I thought of this movie because in the movie, an, an engineer named Peter gets abducted uh, in another country and uh, he is captured. He's being held for a $6 million ransom. And Russell Crowe's character is a professional hostage negotiator. And so he gets kind of called in to negotiate the release of this man named Peter. And what he wants to see before he begins negotiation, he wants to see proof of life. So that's where they get the title for it is proof of life. So the the kinds of things he's looking for is uh, he wants to hear Peter's voice or he wants to see a picture or a video of Peter. He wants to talk to Peter and ask him maybe some questions that only he could know. And these things serve as the evidence that this guy's actually alive. You know, they're not going to turn over a lot of money unless he's actually alive. So proof of life is the name of the movie. Well, you might could say that 1 John was written as a detailed account of evidences of proof of spiritual life. So this little book is written to give the proof and to help us to see what a person looks like who's actually born again, what the new life in Christ really looks like. So we're going to get into that in the weeks ahead. Um, but today, what I, as I want to start, I, I just want to begin to walk through a new book of the Bible. And it's really helpful if we get a grip on what we're reading. So we're going to ask some basic questions just to get a good start here. Like who wrote this letter? Who's it to? Why was it written? When was it written? What were the circumstances going on? Around that, these are good questions, good things to ask and to establish as you're beginning a new book of the Bible so that um, as you read, you interpret and apply correctly. Uh, If you don't know some of these things, you might make some mistakes. So, as you found your place in 1 John, let me ask you who's the author of this book? John, that's right, you got it. So, John is the author of the book. This this book is, uh, is titled for its author. Um, This is the Apostle John. He wrote this letter as an old man. Most all his friends, the other disciples, have already faced death for their faith. They've been martyred for believing in Christ. And only John remains. He was, uh, one historian writes, the living and abiding voice of truth for the churches. Lots of people wanted to come and hear and meet and talk to the Apostle John. This this man who had been with Christ. They wanted to hear his testimony of what his character is like. Who was he? What did he say? They wanted to hear from John. Who, Who is John? Well, he was one of the first disciples to follow Jesus. John and his brother James were fishermen. The, uh, the sons of Zebedee, right? And they first come to follow Jesus after a, a miracle where Jesus... Um, miraculously brought fish into the boat. They had been fishing all night. 
And uh, Jesus said, cast your nets on the other side. Peter did. And the boat's overflowing. And James and John have to come and, and help bring in the catch. So they were fishermen. And Jesus called them to be fishers of men. James and his, uh, John and his brother James were both strong. They were, they were fighter type men, rugged men, maybe a bit short fused. Jesus gave them the nickname sons of anybody know? Sons of Thunder. And it's presumed that maybe they got that nickname after uh, an incident where they were traveling through some cities and one of the cities didn't welcome them to come. And James and John told Jesus that they wanted to call down fire from heaven and just smoke them out. Right. Just decimate the place. And Jesus had to rebuke them and say, you guys have yet to see that I didn't come to destroy. I came to save. So John, maybe his character wasn't so loving and so grace-filled. It wasn't natural to him. Maybe he had a short fuse, but time with Jesus transformed his character. Well, John uh, was with James and Peter when Jesus revealed who he really was on the mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. There was a moment where uh, Jesus' clothing changed. He turned bright white. He sort of floated up into the sky. And all of a sudden, they, they had visions of, of Moses and Elijah. And it was just this incredible scene where Christ reveals His glory, who He really is. John was there for that. John was near when Jesus went to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he He prayed and he sweat drops of blood. He was in such anguish and agony. John is near. He's hearing the words of Christ as he prays some of these last prayers. John alone, as far as we know, was at the foot of the cross. The rest of the disciples had scattered, but John is there. And from the cross, Jesus speaks to John and says, John, behold your mother. Talking about Mary, his own mother, Jesus's mother. He says, take care of my mother as though she's your own. This is John. After Jesus' resurrection and the news spread that Jesus had come out of the tomb, John and Peter run to the grave. And John, he's obviously faster than Peter. He outruns Peter. He gets to the tomb first. Peter gets there. He sort of pushes through and goes on in. You know, This is John. He's so close to Christ. Wouldn't you want to go talk to this guy? And like get to know his story. Who is this Jesus? You know, well, John writes um, these three letters, first John, second John, third John. He wrote the gospel of John and he wrote the book of Revelation. So John actually wrote uh, a lot of the New Testament. He's the third uh, as far as quantity, how much was written. The third author who wrote the most in the New Testament. Any idea who the first and second were? Okay, who was first? Oh, we've got, a dis- we've got a debate here. We're not talking about the number of books. We're talking about quantity. So who do you think wrote the most in the New Testament? Luke. Yeah, isn't that crazy? Luke and Acts. Those two works covers a chunk, almost a third of the New Testament. And then it's Paul who wrote 13 letters and then John who wrote five. Three short little letters and two pretty large books. So this is John. This is who we're reading right now. Now, who is he writing to? Well, 
First John isn't uh, written clearly to another pastor like Timothy or Titus. It's not written clearly to a specific church like Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians. It's what we would call a general epistle. John is writing uh, as the last living disciple to really all the churches. He's writing to all the believers who are still following Christ. And um, it's a general epistle. So it makes these application, these truths very applicable to all of us. The oldest traditions of church historians believe that John's writing from the city of Ephesus and he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. But he's writing with the expectation that his words are going to be read uh, broadly, that this letter will be spread from there. So what's the time? What's the date? What's the context? Well, this letter is written around 90 A.D., about 90 A.D. So track track that timing now. Okay, so if. If Jesus was crucified around 30 A.D., 33 A.D., in that ballpark, this is over 50 years, 60 years almost have passed since the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And it's amazing how John writes with such passion and fervor. He's an old man, but the gospel has not gotten old to him. Isn't that beautiful? John writes to contend for true faith in the incarnate Son of God. There was a particular belief rising in the day called Gnosticism. And uh, it, just to be very simple here, it separates the physical world from the spiritual world. And all the physical world, like matter and flesh, is evil. And only the spiritual world is considered Considered good and right, righteous and holy. Well, Gnosticism obviously presents a problem when it comes to Jesus, who is both spirit and flesh. He's both God and man. So a lot of what John is writing, especially from the very beginning, is going to get to the heart of the nature of Christ, the dual natures of Christ, that he's both divine and human. We're going to spend a lot of time today with the doctrine of the incarnation. Some in that day were believing that Jesus was God, but not really a man. That he just took on the appearance of a man. He wasn't really a man. He just took on the appearance. That's one variety of Gnosticism. The other is on the, on the other end of the spectrum that he was really only a man. He was born just like you and I, regular, ordinary Joe. And then at his baptism, the Spirit of God came on him and he became inspired divinely. But then at the crucifixion, when the Spirit left him, that was the end of his divine moment. Because God cannot die. Do you realize John is writing to a culture that's being invaded with heresy? And he's writing to teach the truth of who Christ is. This is bedrock for who we are. So his purpose for writing, he writes mainly, chapter 5 verse 13 gives us a clue, mainly so that you may know you have eternal life. That's what he says. I'm writing these things to you so that you may know you have eternal life. John writes as a a pastor, as 
A man with fatherly love. He's going to speak to us as children. He calls us children all through this letter. But he speaks with direct, unmistakable clarity. He uses simple and sharp truth to correct false ideology and practice. He makes clear what life looks like as a follower of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he draws a line in the sand to help people, us, to discern whether or not we are truly born again. Okay, so as we dig into this short book, I want to make clear what my aim is. As I'm preaching, teaching through this text, my aim is to strengthen your faith, to put your feet firmly on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Okay, it's not to cause any of you to doubt. I want to point us to the solid ground of the gospel on which we stand. But along the way, some of us may realize that we're not truly born again. And listen, maybe based on John's evidences and the truth that he brings to life, maybe as we're looking for proof of life, we don't find it in ourselves. And if that's the case, don't run from it. If that reality surfaces for you and you go, I don't think I really have a relationship with God. Don't run from that. Thank God for his grace and his mercy in revealing it to you and run to him, trusting the truth of the gospel. I hope as we read through this text, we will see the glory of Christ that and learn that overcoming evil in this world really begins. It begins with putting your faith, your like all in hope. You know what I'm saying when I say all in? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. um, when I was in seminary, we played Texas Hold'em a lot. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Uh, we played Texas Hold'em a lot. And I learned what it meant to go all in. To take everything I got. Like if, if this doesn't work out, I'm out. And we push them all in. And here's what I mean. With our lives. We go all in on Jesus. It's all in on Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one and only eternal son of God who came to save sinners like us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we've titled this series that you may know. And that's the point. So we're going to spend about eight weeks here walking through these five chapters. Um, And I couldn't help but think about my friend J.D. growing up. Um. um, and some of the things he, he said about his own experiences. He talked about how when he was in high school, he prayed the, the sinner's prayer like every few days, you know, just in case. Um, and he, he made jokes sometimes that um, in the baptistry at the church, there was, a, there was a locker in there with his name on it and a spare set of clothes, you know, like. Because he was so often being baptized. Again, just in case, you know. He felt like that um, he was never enough. Like his sin was always spoiling his salvation. That he needed to be saved again and again and again and again. And First John is written to help with this. So maybe some of you are like that. And so I want to tell you, this, this book and this sermon series is for you. 
Okay, I want us to begin. So let's stand to our feet as we read the first four verses of 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. We're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Father, please use this little book to give certainty to your children. Use your word now to open our eyes and our hearts to real faith in the real Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So John's opening verses are mysterious. They're filled with what I like to say passion and personal experience. Um, He is beckoning us into relationship with God and his people. John's trying to put to words the glorious reality that God came as a man. God came as a man and made himself knowable. He repeats the line, we've heard, we've seen, we've touched, now we proclaim to you. That repetition indicates passion and personal experience. Imagine for a minute... um, that you were, again, with the, with the football illustration. Here we go. Imagine for a minute that you were at the Iron Bowl the year of the pick six. Right? Um, and you've had this experience at the Iron Bowl, the Alabama versus Auburn game. And at the end of the game, after this incredible moment where Auburn wins, he takes this kick and just somehow radically gets all the way down the edge of the field and runs into the end zone. At the end of the game, you're among the crowd that charges the field, right? And you would have told the story about how you got on the field with the players and you were jumping up and hanging from the, from the uh, field goal post. And you, this was going to be your story, but you got stuck in the hedges. When you jumped. <laughs> I, I can't get over the, the images of that. It's so funny. It's in my mind. But, but so from since that day, that's been your story. Like, I was there. I was stuck in the hedges by the 40-yard line. It was incredible. Everyone was charging the field and I couldn't get through the bushes. But the way you tell the story is filled with passion and you don't mind repeating yourself because it's so it was so amazing. It was so exhilarating to be there, to have that personal experience. There's passion and there's personal experience. Now, think about John. He's had the personal experience of walking with God. 
The God who spoke everything into creation. Who brought a great flood on the earth and the only people to survive it were on Noah's ark. The God who met Moses in the burning bush and parted the Red Sea for the Israelites to walk across. The God who was the fourth man in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The God who gave Samson super strength one more time to bring judgment on his enemies. The God who delivered his people time and time again. And John says, I know him. I've heard him. I've seen him with my eyes. I've put my hands on him. I've walked with him for years. This is the kind of passion and personal experience that John is relating as he begins to open this little letter. When when we begin reading, we see that John is saying this God has now been made manifest. John says that which was from the beginning. Now you think about how would you explain that God Almighty has become a man? John does it this way. That which was from the beginning concerning the word of life has been made manifest. We can't help but think about the opening words of John's gospel. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And ultimately, we can't help but think about the opening words of the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, John knows how to make an entrance, right? This is an epic way to begin a letter. He begins this way because the idea he's conveying is glorious. It's massive. God Almighty became a man. This is the incarnation. John says that it's only through this reality that we actually have fellowship with God. He came to us. Jesus shed his own blood for us. He died the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, as Peter says. So I want to see I want us to see together four glorious truths from this text. The first is this Christ Eternally existed with God the Father. Christ eternally existed with God the Father. John says that which was from the beginning. It's a strange way. That word that. That's a strange reference to a person. Well, not in today's culture. I guess it's not. Our pronouns are weird today. That which was from the beginning. John's speaking about Christ impersonally so as to make a distinction between his eternal God nature and his personhood. But you'll notice when he hits verse five, he doesn't mind referring to him with a personal pronoun. He says, this is the message we have heard from him. It's the same way he wrote in John chapter one. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God in verse 14. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. So Jesus is from the beginning. That which is from the beginning. He had no beginning. Christ just 
always has been. I don't know if, um, if you're at this point, but I am with my children. When we talk at the end of the evening, we do Bible stories together. They ask me questions, and some of them really hard questions. Daddy, well, who made God? God made everything, but who, who made God? Well, baby, no one made God. He's just always been. Well, what does that mean? How has he always been? Well, I'm not real sure, but he's just always, he's always been. And we tend to think about Jesus different for some reason. We tend to think about Jesus with this beautiful little beginning point in a manger scene. And there's angels and shepherd boys and those things. And, and that was a beginning point, but it wasn't the beginning point. That was the beginning for God coming to us. But this God, this Christ, this Son of God has eternally existed with the Father. Jesus affirmed this reality in John 8, 58. He's teaching the Pharisees who really should know better. But he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. Ooh, that's foundational reality. Jesus is saying, I'm not just a historical character. Before Abraham was, I was, I am, I will be, I always have been because I have no beginning. I have been with the Father eternally. I love the way Jesus talks to Pilate. In John chapter 18, verse 37, Pilate says, don't you know who I am? I could, and whatever, he's threatening Jesus. Jesus says, if my kingdom were of this world, I would have already smoked you. That's not exactly what he said. I like to think that's what he said. Uh, John 18, 37, though, this is exactly what he said. Jesus said this, for this purpose, I was born. Now listen, and for this purpose, I have come into the world. Who can say I was born and I have come? Except for the eternally existing Son of God. No one can say that. He was from the beginning. Jesus is from the beginning. He is the word of life, John teaches us. In John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. There's some beautiful truth here about the creation story. When we read from Genesis, we don't always see Christ in the storyline. But John, as he writes his gospel, he sheds light on what we may not have seen in the Genesis story. He tells us this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now look, He, masculine singular pronoun, He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And this life was the light of men. Jesus Christ is the word of life. So he is the creative word of God. Everything God created, he created through Christ. Colossians 1 is going to say it was by him and through him and for him. So he is also not only the creative words of life, but the words of eternal life. We'll get to this in, a, in just a moment. But remember in John 6, when Jesus, after feeding the thousands 
uh, with the little boy's lunch. He fed the thousands and then he says some really crazy things like, if you want to live forever, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the crowd dissipates. They're like, man, this guy makes good food, but that was weird. And they leave. And Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus is the word of life. He is the eternal life, John's teaching. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is exclusive. It's an exclusive claim to access to God. There is no other way to God through Je- except through Jesus. He's the only way. But he's the life. In John 17, 3, we get, we get uh, a better understanding of what eternal life is. We, we often think of eternal life like, when I die, I will enter eternal life. And from Jesus' own words in his prayer in John 17, he actually says, and this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Listen, if you know Christ, you have eternal life. Second big truth. I realize time's getting away from me. Second big truth. First one is Christ has eternally existed from the beginning. The second one is Christ was manifested in a human flesh as a man. Now the word manifested is really important even though it's not common in our everyday talk. What it makes clear is that Jesus didn't begin at his birth. In a few months we will celebrate Christmas and our minds again go to that cute little manger scene. We must remember this is the coming of the Son, not this beginning. His full essence, when we talk about manifesting, what we mean is His full essence came in the form of a baby boy. That is mind-blowing, isn't it? That He grew into the full stature of a man. I think about the humility of God in flesh actually maturing. The patience of our God to endure 30 some odd years of maturing blows my mind in Philippians 2 Paul writes and encourages us with to be to be humble as Christ is humble and he uses the example of Christ's incarnation I want you to listen he says who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Now listen, this is the, the wildest birth ever. We don't talk this way about the birth of our children. Right? When I held almost 10 months ago those twin boys in my arms, I didn't say, well, isn't he cute? He's taken on the form of a servant. And been born in the likeness of men. <laughs> and my wife looked at me and said, Why, yes, he is found in human form, isn't he? 
No, that's ridiculous. It's because my children are only human. They're not God being manifested as human. The incarnation is glorious. In Jesus, listen, God came to us. John is so obsessed with this idea. He's so blown away that he personally experienced God in the flesh that he passionately repeats the refrain. The one we heard. We, we, we saw him with our eyes. We, we touched him with our hands. Him we proclaim. He is God. Being with Jesus was the thrill of his life. And now... Over 50 years later, the story has not gotten old. He still gets goosebumps talking about Christ and inviting someone else to come into fellowship with him. May it be so of us. So the incarnation is glorious, but it is also, and this one is a big one, it is also offensive. You say, well, how is the incarnation of Christ offensive. Well, if God remains a spiritual and distant reality, we can continue to come and worship him and then go about living our lives as we wish. But if God comes as a man. Well, now we have the visible image of what it looks like to live and honor God. Can't give you the whole quote, but from John Piper, there's a quote that I just have not been able to get out of my mind. He calls the incarnation a stumbling block. And here's what he says. Listen carefully. This is really important. I don't think it's so much the mystery of a divine and human nature in one person that causes most people to stumble over the doctrine of the incarnation. The stumbling block is that if the doctrine is true... Every single person in the world must obey this one particular Jewish man. When God becomes a man, he strips away every pretense of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing. We must do what this one Jewish man wants us to do. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient. Because this one Jewish man says we're all sick with sin and must come to him for healing. We can no longer depend on our own wisdom to find life. Because this one Jewish man who lived for 30 obscure years in a little bitty country in the Middle East says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and you must come to me. When God becomes a man, suddenly everything hinges on Jesus. This is radical. The way the human experience is intended to be is now made clear and visible. We can see him. We can hear him. We can. John says he touched him. John says this is the test for determining doctrinal integrity. If you flip a few pages over in first John in chapter four, verse two, look at what he says by this. You know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. 
Listen, this is the litmus test for what you ought to believe. Paul actually says that the human heart is so rebellious to this idea that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, we cannot even confess it with our mouths. Paul said, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now listen, do you truly receive Jesus Christ as God in flesh? If you do, it revolutionizes the way you live, which is what the rest of the book is about. Number three, I'm going quickly now. Our fellowship is through Christ with the Father and the Son. This is what John says almost directly. John proclaims Christ, the eternal Son of God, now come in the flesh so that others may share in the fellowship with us. Did you notice that? John has given an invitation for people to come into his family. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. I love this passion for people to believe in Christ. The invitation is to come into a family. The the word here for fellowship, we're going to hear it a lot in in, in this letter from John, is the word koinonia, Greek word koinonia. Here's what it means. It, It marks a relationship with a deep connection around something significant. The kind of connection that overrides any other difference. Did you know that you have more in common with a Christian in Somalia today than you do with a neighbor who doesn't know Christ? You have a richer, deeper connection with believers in West Africa than you do with your co-workers who do not profess Jesus as Lord. This fellowship overrides every other distinction. It's the baseline, the, the cornerstone of our fellowship. John says, fellowship with us. The work of the Son is the work of adoption. He's bringing us into a family. We are the blood-bought children of God. Amen? So this fellowship is not shallow. It's not based on merit. No, where you pay your dues and enjoy the perks. That's not this fellowship. This fellowship is based on his mercy. None of us in this family deserve to be here. Were it not for Christ, none of us would be. In his earthly ministry, he spent his time with tax collectors and sinners. Listen, he's still doing that today. That's why you're here. If you weren't aware, that's who you are. That's who I am. So John says, I welcome you by way of Christ to come into fellowship with us. Broken people trusting in a holy Savior. Then he says, I welcome you into indeed our fellowship is with the father and the son. When we come to the table, we have fellowship with one another. Sure. But the true treasure of our fellowship is that we come into relationship with the father and his son, Jesus Christ. He's the treasure. He's the honored guest at the table. He's the host. This is the reason Jesus taught us to pray our father in heaven. This is world shaking through Christ. 
we actually know God and have relationship with Him. Last truth. John tells us something that is remarkable. At the end of verse 4, he says, I'm writing these things so that our joy, our joy may be complete. So number four, our joy is completed by sharing Christ and welcoming others into fellowship. John makes clear he's proclaiming and writing these things so that joy will be fulfilled. It's amazing how personal pleasure in something is only fully enjoyed when it's been told to someone else and that someone else actually believes you and finds joy in it too. For example, uh, my wife's in the room today, so this will be fun. Um, for years now, I've tried to convince my wife, Lauren, of the right way to assemble a hamburger. That, you know, the, the flat bun is on the bottom and you put the mayonnaise and then you layer it with pickles and then you put the meat and then all the other stuff like the ketchup and the mustard and the, oh, I forgot, lettuce is on the bottom as well. And then ketchup and mustard and all, all the, is on the top and you stack that thing and it's beautiful and juicy. And, and I've tried to tell her. Baby, that thing you're eating is just dry and plain. You don't know what good is until you try it like this. And I've tried and tried and tried, but she's just stubborn and won't (laughs) and won't won't give in. But here's what I'm telling you. When I joyfully explain to somebody how to properly assemble the burger, and they take that hamburger and they take a big juicy bite, and just as I've described it. Bite that thing and go, oh, you're so right. This is glorious. It fills my joy. Because there's something about having something beautiful that is a little bit incomplete until you share it and somebody else is like, yes, this is good. With Christ, it's so much bigger. So much bigger. It's to say, what you've been looking for is Jesus. He's where it's at. And you're going to be lacking until you've tasted and seen that God is good. And God has come to us in the man, Christ Jesus. And He gave His life so you can have life. And what you're eating is a waste. Give yourself to Jesus and you'll know life. And life more abundantly. This is the good news of the gospel. So let me encourage you today. With the good news of Jesus, I'm encouraging you to ask God to reignite a passion within you, church. Ask God to reveal to you how glorious this truth is. That He Himself came to be one of us. So He could redeem all of us. If you're truly a Christian, you've had a personal encounter with Him. Don't let that light grow dim. You know how you keep that light ablaze? Don't hide it under a basket. This little light of mine. I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine. Let it shine. Be bold. Be passionate with the good news of Christ. Take that passion and your personal experience. And you will find the completeness of your joy as you welcome others into the fellowship with us and with the Father and the Son. Now, if you're here today and all this is new to you, maybe you're not a believer. 
Let me tell you, there is no one like Jesus. He is the only one worth following. Give your life to him. Confess your sin. Your need to be saved. Call on him as Lord and he will save you. If you want to know Christ today, there's a lot of people here that like to tell you about him. God is good. Amen. He is good. And he has come to us in the incarnation of the son of God to save broken people like you and me. Isn't that good?